Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. It's Earth Week, the week that includes Earth Day and a variety of events, announcements, and more related to caring for the Earth, the environment, environmental protection, taking on climate change, green energy solutions, and related issues, and much more. It's a week and a day that are often filled with government announcements, policymaking, and so forth, updates on prior announcements. This Friday, April 22nd, is Earth Day 2022, and we are speaking today with two great guests on the subject of Earth Week in New York. Julie Tai, the president of the New York League of Conservation Voters, a leading advocate and expert on climate, the environment, and related policy in New York, and Daniel Zarilli, the special advisor on climate and sustainability at Columbia University and former New York City chief climate policy advisor. And Dan held a couple of roles under mayors de Blasio and Bloomberg, helping to craft some of the city's major climate-related policy. My conversation with Julie Tai and Dan's really in just one moment. First, if you missed any of our recent reporting, find us at GothamGazette.com. A lot of great coverage there of the recently adopted state budget, which we're going to talk a bit about today, and much, much more in New York City and state politics. So again, find us at GothamGazette.com. And here on Max Politics, I've had a lot of great recent guests and conversations. I won't give you the full list, but you can find any or all of those at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. We have them all posted there. Just a couple of quick highlights. I recently spoke with the new New York City Council Progressive Caucus co-chairs. That's Council Member Shahana Hanif and Lincoln Ressler. Had an interesting discussion about what the new Progressive Caucus in the City Council is looking to do and how they're approaching their work both in the City Council and vis-a-vis Mayor Eric Adams. Recently had on the show together uh, State Senators Jabari Brisport and Julia Salazar. Uh, breaking down their reactions to the new state budget and what they're looking to do in the legislative session that's upcoming, Uh, and a whole bunch of other great recent guests, including other state senators like John Liu of Queens, uh, Republican State Senate Minority Leader Rob Ort, uh, journalists, uh, advocates, experts on a whole bunch of policy and political items, including housing, cryptocurrency, public health, charter schools, and more. So again, you can find any or all of those at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcast or at the Gotham Gazette site. All right, here on this episode of the show, I'm pleased to be joined by Julie Tai, the president of the New York League of Conservation Voters, a leading advocate and expert on climate and environmental policies, and Daniel Zarelli, special advisor on climate and sustainability at Columbia University and former New York City chief climate policy advisors, and Dan's really held a couple of uh, several different roles under mayors Bill de Blasio and Michael Bloomberg, helping to craft some of the city's major climate-related policies. Thank you both for being here. Welcome. So glad to be be here. here. Thanks, Ben. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. And we're talking here on Tuesday, April 19th. Folks might be listening later today uh, when we get this posted or later on in Earth Week or just ahead of Earth Day, on Earth Day, just after, but uh, it'll all still be relevant. This is happening, of course, as officials at the federal, state, and city levels are making announcements related to the environment and climate change. They're highlighting past actions, progress on uh, announcements of the past, and so forth. We are talking just a few days after the New York State Public Service Commission approved two major new contracts that will help uh, deliver transmission lines, clean, renewable solar, wind, and hydroelectric power from upstate New York and Canada to New York City. And we're gonna talk about that in just one second. Uh, These are uh, mega projects that will be getting underway for bringing renewable energy to New York City from upstate, from Canada, uh, billions of dollars in, in contracts here and potential uh, economic development and green jobs and, and really major development there. Those were expected to be approved, but there was still a little bit of question leading up to the commission's vote. So that's where we're going to start today in just a moment. Uh, but these are these are major developments. And we're also talking just over a week after the new New York state budget was adopted, including a number of climate related policies and allocations in the budget. 
There were other things that some advocates uh, and legislators like our guests here wanted to see in the state budget that did not make it into the budget. So we'll discuss a lot there, the, the good, the bad and the ugly in the state budget related to climate and environmental policy. And of course, now we enter the state legislative session over the next several weeks until early June. So there's time for more state action. And we're now in the midst of city budget season leading up to the uh, July deadline for a new city budget. And, and we're still in the relatively early days of the administration of Mayor Eric Adams. And obviously, lots of uh, policy we're expecting from the Adams administration on climate and environmental issues. All right. So, Julie Ty, Dan Zarelli, thanks again for being here. Let's start with the approval of those two major transmission lines. Julie, uh, just start us off in terms of the broad importance of these two transmission lines? What do they mean to New York State and New York City in terms of um, the the potential and, and the promised impact here? Sure. So I think it sort of requires us to take a step back and know that both the state and the city have set really ambitious goals for moving to uh, you know, clean energy and, and critically to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So the state law under the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act requires us to have 70% of our renewable, uh, 70% of our energy from renewable sources by 2030 and 100% to be emissions free by 2040. And right now the upstate grid is very clean something like the order of 90% of the uh, power upstate New York is is sort of uh, is emissions free. It's from hydro, it's from nuclear, which doesn't have any carbon dioxide emissions. Whereas in New York City, it's about 85% of our power comes from fossil fuels. And you know, for us in, to meet our goals of reducing uh, emissions, um, 40% by 2030 overall and 85% uh, by 2050 with a goal of net zero, we need to bring clean energy to downstate New York. So first of all, it's like it's critical to the fact that we need to meet these very big objectives because as we're looking towards how are we going to decarbonize our buildings? How are we going to decarbonize the transportation sector? First and foremost, what we need to do is we need to decarbonize our electricity because um, we'll be relying on that more and more. So we know that part of the, the solution to that is going to be energy efficiency. And part of the solution to that is going to be rooftop solar. And part of the solution to that, a big part of it will be offshore wind. But we know we also need to bring transmission in. Right now, there's insufficient amount of transmission bringing power into New York City. And there's simply not enough room uh, within the city to get the sort of the kind of generation that you need to displace all the fossil fuel power that we're currently receiving. So we know that these two projects are expected to reduce fossil fuel dependence by about 43% versus what we're currently doing now. If that gives you sort of a a sense of magnitude, that's a big amount from two projects. Yeah, absolutely. Dan, what else? Additional context here. Obviously, um, you've been intimately involved in New York City policymaking. So when, when it comes to that, these transmission lines that will bring, expected to bring, promised to bring uh, so much clean energy to New York City, as Julie was outlining, uh, what additional context have you been thinking about with these um, transmission lines, that the contracts for which just got approved? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't overstate how important um, these projects are. Julie is absolutely right that the scale of the impact is is enormous from these projects. Um, it also helps to underscore that you know we still have a lot more to do. The the, the debates that have played out around um, tier four and these um, these clean energy transmission projects have have done so in a way you know. It, that have made, I think some people walk away thinking, well, it's uh, there's one big project and we can get everything done, or if you don't have to do that one because you can do something else. And the reality is we need to do all of it and more. And it's it's the energy efficiency and things like local law 97 that are going to help drive down our energy use overall. And as we're doing that, as we're electrifying buildings, electrifying transportation, we need a clean grid. And that's going to come, yes, from Canadian hydropower, but also from upstate solar and wind. It's going to come from offshore wind. We need more geothermal. We're going to need um, battery storage. It's like all of it. And even with all of the um, actions that are happening now, um, we're still going to, uh, you know, have to do a lot more after 2030 to be able to hit those 2040 targets, which are really ambitious. 
But the, probably the most important element of these transmission projects that I see is, so yes, we're going to be slashing our emissions, slashing the amount of fossil fuel generation, but what comes with that is much cleaner air. Um, we have been dealing with air quality, pollution, um, and environmental injustice that comes along with it in the areas around the fossil fuel generation in the city. And these projects are going to allow us to use those generation assets a whole lot less, um, cleaning the air in our communities, driving our emissions down. And it's, you know, it's like one really important piece of many that are going to help us to end our reliance on fossil fuels here in New York City. You know, I'm glad you brought up, you know, I, I, from where I sit, you know, I think the conversation often operates at um, sort of too high a level at, at this sort of 30,000 foot level that, that doesn't talk enough about sort of the more immediate impacts of transitioning to cleaner energy. Um, there's obviously a good bit of discussion of that, but often uh, a lot of these really big numbers and really big goals and even things that are six or seven years out, like 2030, um, you know, are still a little bit far off. Whereas sort of every every bit of the transition helps communities have cleaner air, for example, right? And, and you know, every sort of vehicle that's replaced from, you know, something that's, um, you know, spewing carbon emissions to something that's that's not is is significant for, for people in neighborhoods. And I think sometimes that, that gets left out of the conversation. Um, Julie, you mentioned nuclear. I, will, I didn't, I was maybe going to get to this later, but you mentioned it. So, how should we be thinking about nuclear power in all of this? There's obviously been a lot of um, there were there were warnings that taking Indian Point offline was not a good idea. Uh, that happened anyway. There's been a lot of hand wringing afterward, as we've seen um, that lead to an increase in, in reliance on fossil fuels to power New York City. Um, sort of Indian Point as a specific example aside. How should we be thinking about nuclear power in the larger equation of, of how New York goes um, fossil free? Well, I think the first thing we need to consider is before we consider taking more nuclear power offline, which has a lot of other risks, right? If we're talking strictly about carbon and emissions, like pollution emissions, then you know what? There's a, there's a very, very important role that nuclear plays, but there are obviously a lot of other risks dealing with what do you do with the material when it's done? Um, and is the old technology the right thing to be thinking about in the future? I don't think the answer to that is yes. There's not a whole lot of consideration of building huge new nuclear power plants um, but I think first and foremost, we shouldn't turn the power plants upstate off until they're replaced with renewable energy that's reliable. Um, so I think it's that combination of things and th those those power plants upstate that we should not be considering. I mean, I think Indian Point was the concern was more about safety and the potential risk to you know, tens of millions of people, should there be some kind of attack, for example, um, or there's some kind of major tragedy associated with that. Um, and it was old and there definitely needed to be a lot of changes to it. But I think, you know, <laughs> before we think about new nuclear, let's talk about existing, <laughs> not mm -hmm. turning them off until we're replacing them with clean energy. I think that's sort of the first place we need to be thinking about it. Now, I'm, I'm not sure what other role it'll play going forward, as opposed to looking at other new technologies and what we need to do to address those other sectors. What is the best and most economic way um, that will reduce pollution and not just carbon? Because I think we talk too much about carbon and not enough to your point a moment ago go about, you know, dealing with the cars coming off the road, that it's not just carbon that you're doing. Like carbon is not necessarily the immediate problem for people who live in the neighborhood, right? But the immediate problem there is particulate matter. But the immediate problem there is NOx. The immediate problem there is, you know, benzene and other toxic pollutants. So we have to make sure that we're looking at the whole picture um, and what we're doing to, to meet our needs for how we're heating and cooling our buildings, how we're, you know, getting around for transportation, um, what we're doing about manufacturing, all of those pieces. So I think that is sort of the more important thing that we need to be looking at. Um, Dan, jump in on, on nuclear if you have thoughts on that, but I want to get back to the New York City buildings emissions law with you. Do you have anything you want to add on the nuclear front and, and your opinion? Well, I just, I would love to just reinforce um, Julie's point that, mm -hmm. you know, closing down existing generation, like zero carbon generation assets without dealing with 
the impacts of, of doing so. I think one of the major flaws, I think, of the Indian point closure was, um, you know, a number of advocates and others saying that, well, it's automatically going to be replaced with clean power and so we can deal without it. And, and the reality just was not that at all. It was replaced with natural gas. Mm-hmm. So we dug ourselves a deeper hole. We're getting ourselves out of that hole with, um, with these new transmission projects and with driving um, energy efficiency work. Um, but we did dig ourselves a deeper hole that we have to get out of now. And, um, you know, really thinking through, you know, the upstate um, uh, nuclear fleet and, you know, the reliability and air quality and, um, and cost benefits it provides, it, um, it really does seem like you really need to be thinking about those, um, those outcomes and the right way to replace that if at some point in the future we feel like we need to replace it. But shutting down existing zero carbon assets seems like a mistake. Mm-hmm. And, and before we get back to the, the cities and the buildings emissions law, Local Law 97, um, I just want to take a quick second to also plug, I didn't mention this in the intro because it's a few months old, but I did have a really good conversation with Doreen Harris, who's the president and CEO of the New York State Energy Research and development authority, which is a state aligned authority that's that's involved in, and really running so many of these clean energy projects, including the contracts related to these transmission lines. So if folks are interested in that conversation with Doreen Harris, you can find that uh, in our podcast feed or at the Gotham Gazette site. Um, so, Dan, th- th- there's there was a recent hearing at the city council on oversight of implementation of local law 97. This is the the city's, you know, landmark building uh, emissions law to try to really cut down on the emissions from buildings, which people don't realize are, are such a huge polluter, uh, often don't realize. Um, your thoughts on sort of where that stands and the, you know, there's some debate, the Adams administration is concerned about being overly punitive and not necessarily helping uh, buildings, you know, do what they need to do to retrofit or upgrade and not wanting it to just be uh, a system of fines, but actually meet its intended goals, or at least that's what they say. What do you make of where the city is in um, implementation of that and any sort of words of, of warning or guidance here uh, for, the, for the path ahead? Yeah, so it's really important topic. Um, as you're stating, buildings are the biggest source of emissions in New York City. It's about 70% of the city's greenhouse gas emissions. That's the combustion in the building. That's the electric um, power that's provided, that, that's going to the building. So all of it combined um, leads you to that so roughly 70% of emissions. And Local Law 97, it's a world-leading piece of legislation that is intended to drive down those emissions and not in the way that, you know, lots of lots of other places are upgrading their building codes for new construction, going after existing buildings, 90% of which will still be here by 2050, is the only way to really go at the, the bulk of those um, emissions. And so by setting declining caps and enforcing that, that's putting the city on a path to delivering on its overall carbon neutrality goals and cutting emissions 80% by 2050. And so where we stand with the law now, it's, you know, there's, you know, there's a rulemaking process that the Department of Buildings is running to clarify um, a number of the pieces that were left unclarified by the legislative compromise that ultimately passed the council. And yes, there are, um, there's a, a run, seems to be a running debate over how best to enforce the law. And, you know, I, I from my own perspective on this, it is, um, it's the most important climate and energy efficiency law in the country. We need to show how we can deliver on this. The rulemaking process with DOB is the way to clarify any of the sort of missing pieces or extra clarity that the law does need. But there needs to be some sort of um, you know, compliance at the end of the day to make sure that people are delivering on the retrofits, the air quality improvements, the job creation that comes along with this law. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll quote Costa Constantinides, the council member who, who um, helped shepherd that law through the council. We, we don't like the city never wanted the fines. The city wants the carbon, and so uh, you know the, the the goal here is to get the retrofits done, and you know fines and compliance. I think are a helpful way to drive that behavior, but it's not about the fines. The city doesn't want those uh, dollars; it wants the carbon. 
is there room for the city reconsidering, you know, sort of not just uh, loan programs, but more, um, you know, grant programs? I, I mean, you know, any thoughts on sort of tinkering with the equation so that it, it becomes more palatable financially for building owners? I'm sure all that's on the table. And, and Mayor Adams, as uh, you know, rightly pointed out that many buildings may need that additional, you know, financial assistance and incentives. Um, and and I, I imagine that within the low income housing um, uh, building stock, we're going to need more of that kind of investment. Um, it's it's going to be, though, important to make sure that we you know, are clear on how this is going to be enforced and delivered upon and that we need to not. What we can't do is put the ambition up for debate. I think what we need to do is make sure that the rules and the compliance are aligned and the incentives are aligned so we get the the deep emission cuts from our existing building stock. But I, I worry that when we start to debate how, you know, how best to do compliance this is what we're really doing is debating the ambition of the law to deliver massive emissions cuts. And I think there are ways to clarify the law, make sure it works for building owners so that the ambition remains the same, but we find the most cost-effective ways to reach those goals. Now, the other thing related to buildings that New York City recently did was um, a few months back uh, was to pass a law to outlaw uh, basically new gas hookups and new development or gut renovations in the city uh, starting in a couple of years. That was something, Julie, that was being debated as potentially a, there, there being a state um, version of that passed in the state budget that did not make it into the state budget. But there were quite a few climate related, clean energy related, uh, environmental related pieces that were passed in the new state budget. Some things, as I said in the introduction, that some advocates like yourself and and some legislators wanted but didn't get. Um, but give us give us the rundown of, of a few things um, that you think are particularly notable that you uh, and others pushing for these things were able to win in the state budget. Uh, and then we can get to a couple other things that didn't make it in that the fight continues on. Sure. First, I think the new the new New York City new construction law is really critical, um, and it does set the stage for us, you know, encouraging other communities to take, you know, to follow our lead, um, which is what New York needs to do. New York is the East Coast anchor of the climate conversation at every every step of the way, and and oftentimes we are fighting to lead California as well. Um, so having New York City pass that law was really critical. Looking at new construction because you know our friends in real estate also realize like it's a lot easier to do this when you're building a new building then and how we're going to deal with all the retrofits of the existing buildings. It's a lot cheaper and more cost-effective. Um, so the state, as you pointed out, Governor Hochul had proposed legislation that would do three things. Um, one, it would take away the requirement that uh, utilities would um, be required to do a hookup if they're within 100 feet of a gas line. Um, two is it would upgrade our, our building code um, uh, to make sure that our, we're doing things much more efficiently, um, which New York City already has what they call the stretch code. Um, and so we're certainly trying to make sure that the state of New York has that across all municipalities, because as we know, this is a home rule state. So um, building code is, is developed at the local level. Um, and then third, it would require new construction similar to the New York City laws you just mentioned uh, to all be you know, um, uh, not reliant on carbon or fossil fuels starting in 2027, which is very, very close to now. <laughs> We're talking about five years for all new construction. Um, so that is really a, a very close. So it was a, unfortunate, but the, the Senate had included that legislation in their one house bill as well. Um, and the assembly did not want to talk about policy um, in the state budget. So it did not get done. So we are hopeful that that'll be something that still gets done between now and the end of the legislative session. But some of the things that did get done was we passed a $4.2 billion Clean Water, Clean Air, Green Jobs Environmental Bond Act. It's the largest bond act the state of New York has ever advanced for the environment. It's the most amount of money we've ever invested this year in climate and the environment um, in the state. So I think that was really momentous. And of that, $1.5 billion is specifically for climate mitigation projects. Um, 
things like, you know, doing clean green schools to make our schools and disadvantaged communities more energy efficient and to put solar panels on them or geothermal, uh, for example. Um, we're working on tackling um, pollution in disadvantaged communities. Um, those have been overburdened by pollution. There's $500 million available for electric school buses um, as part of that bond act. Um, and there's, of course, some other, other funding. There's uh, $1.2 billion for, for climate resiliency, making sure our communities are prepared for storm surge and for flooding, um, both inland and from the coastal, um, as well as to um, use nature to help um, prepare us for those endangers because water always wins, as I often say, mm. um, as well as more traditional programs like funding for parks and open space and clean water infrastructure. Um, on school buses, there's actually accompanying that and building on a law that New York City passed again last year, I'm hearing a theme here, New York City passes it and then the state of New York passes it. Um, but there's a requirement for all of our school buses across the entire state to be all electric by 2035. Um, that is the earliest and largest um, uh, movement of school bus electrification in the country. We have the most school buses of any state, which is crazy to me. We have about 50,000 school buses of the, the nation's 500,000 school bus fleet. Um, so that is a really big, meaningful uh, move forward that We'll make sure that we're reducing air pollution and climate pollution from school buses for, as as Catherine Garcia always says, the people with the littlest lungs, the tiniest lungs, um, who are most sensitive, and the communities where the depots are often located um, are often, again, those disadvantaged communities that have been overburdened with pollution from diesel, diesel fuels. So that was really, really big. Um, the governor also had proposed and, is, and included in the final budget $500 million for offshore wind port infrastructure development. Um, so that'll help us support um, getting supply chains and manufacturing associated with the offshore wind uh, industry that is coming. It's already started. Uh, the first project is actually in construction right now um, off of Eastern Long Island. Um, and so this is a way for us to capitalize on not just the construction of the turbines um, and the interconnection of the turbines, but actually all those materials that go into building those turbines. So that, I think, was a really, really big win. Um, another, I'm going to say in the loss category, and then I'll stop, sure. is that... Um, you know, we really outside of school buses um, and some modest, uh, modest supports for EVs, we have really not tackled the transportation sector. Um, you know, it's it's the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the country. And depending on how you calculate it, it's the either the largest or the first uh, or the second largest in New York state. And so we had been hopeful um, that the governor uh, and the legislature would consider adopting a clean fuel standard to move us towards clean transportation to decarbonize the, the fuels that we're using while we're moving towards electrification and to support a rapider or to speed up the, the um, electrification of our light duty, medium duty and heavy duty fleets, because we're gonna be having these vehicles on the road, they're being sold uh, that require some kind of fuel usage for the next you know, 15 years for light duty vehicles or passenger vehicles, and for another 25 years for medium and heavy duty vehicles. So that is an area where we're still advocating for something to be done between now and the end of the legislative session, um, building on the, the successful clean fuel laws adopted in California, Oregon, and Washington states. Mm. And we should also note that there there were a couple of things that got into the budget that um, relate to climate and environment that you and others were disappointed about, including the the gas tax holiday. That obviously, um, as you as you noted in your initial reaction to the state budget deal, obviously uh, you know people are are feeling the crunch on their on their wallets, on their pocketbooks, and so forth. But also, uh, you know, obviously encouraging more driving in a way or, um, you know, potentially reducing the, some of the money that goes towards mass transit is, is a, is a troublesome policy to some. Just to I be also, very clear, oh, please, the, way the, the way that the governor and the legislature adopted it, they are holding the MTA They're, harmless. Right. And that was an important consideration and we appreciate that, but we do need people to move to mass transit, to micro mobility, um, out, out of, <laughs> out of personal vehicles as, as so much, 
um, at least out of gas-fueled vehicles and into EVs. Um, so certainly that is driving. There was an article, I think, in the Times this weekend that talked about how the price of gas is in fact resulting in there being an increased interest in electric vehicles. Now, nobody wants to see it necessarily come at that cost of consumers, in particular low-income consumers, but we don't want to reward people who are driving the most fuel inefficient vehicles, which is what a gas tax holiday unfortunately does. Um, I also want to note this discussion of the uh, $4.2 billion Environmental Bond Act. This is something that will be voted on by by voters this fall. It will be on the general election ballot. The state is basically asking for voters' permission to do this bonding, to to raise this money, uh, to spend it on these causes that you mentioned. And that will be money, if approved by the voters, that the state will then be bonding out and then be able to uh, spend in the designated ways towards uh, governmental programs, local government programs, uh, nonprofit organizations, and so forth that apply then for carrying out the the goals and using that spending. So that is a question for voters. I haven't seen any real organized opposition to this to this bond act. So I, I don't well, know that there. Yeah, go ahead. We are not taking that for granted. Uh, right. Well, we, we will, saw that. We will come back to you and talk, but we yeah. have a okay. we do have a coalition uh, that has um, been building for a few years now that will be planning a robust campaign to make sure that people vote yes and critically that they're educated about the fact that there are in fact ballot propositions on the ballot that they're sure that they should be looking at because all too often we see New York City voters actually. Often skip voting on those ballots. Yeah, well, we at Gotham we Gazette come will back and talk about we'll, that more. Okay, we we at Gotham Gazette will of course be be trying to educate people on that as we always do. Dan Zarelli, when you watch the state budget unfold, anything that stood out to you in terms of um, things you really wanted to see included that weren't? Anything that was included that you want to underscore or highlight that that Julie didn't mention? Any any analysis or thoughts from you on the on the state budget deal that was reached? Well, I mean, that was a great litany that just that Julie just ran through on on what was included and what wasn't included. I think the the highest profile thing that was on my um, radar was the um, was the state gas ban, um, which did not get into the budget. And I'm hopeful that the coalition pulls together to get that to pass during session. The governor was um, supportive and uh, proposed that in in her budget. The state Senate was supportive. The assembly didn't want to do that, um, that policy in the budget. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that we're able to pull together and, and, and get that done. You know, this, the city has already passed a gas ban. We're already seeing how that's having a, an effect in the marketplace between local on 97 and the gas ban. You're starting to see more buildings, more developers announced that they're building all electric. We just saw JP Morgan make that announcement for their brand new headquarters uh, last week. Uh, it's it's just remarkable. I think this is consistent with you know what we're seeing with what you just mentioned on the electric school buses. You know we have this like we're we're moving the marketplace in so many different ways, and whether it's with our purchasing power on changing how the nation is going to build its school buses, or I think we're seeing this very directly in the building and construction trades that. Um, we're, we're building this marketplace for energy efficiency, for electric buildings um, that is going to have benefits all across this country as we learn the lessons and figure out how to get that done. And, you know, it's, it's showing that it's feasible and, and that it's also necessary in order to be able to hit the CLCPA targets, the local on 97 targets, and the state needs to get this done. And we're hoping that happens um, in the rest of the session. And Dan, speak a little bit about sort of the the speed of things here. Um, you know, there's debates around the building emissions law. There's debates about the the uh, you know the gas ban in, in new construction or gut renovations about when it should start, who should be exempted. You know, all of these questions about timelines. Everybody's obviously uh, often focused on you know the sort of global climate change picture, rising seas, rising temperatures. Um, and then as we talked about earlier, also local effects of pollution, uh, asthma rates and, 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 and all sorts of, um, all sorts of effects that are, you know, sort of felt in, in communities everywhere. Um, and not to the same degree, of course, as we, as we discussed, um, it, it, 
is the conversation happening sort of with the right sense of urgency here? You know, you talk, you hear government leaders all the time in New York talk about taking nation leading action or talking about, you know, major transformative uh, decisions that are being made. And, and in some cases, as we've already discussed, some of these laws are, are such. Um, but then, you know, you get into these negotiations around, you know, the New York City streets master plan and how quickly, you know, things are happening on bus lanes and bike lanes and pedestrian space and, and all of these things that are part of the picture. Assess assess the conversation right now, the sense of urgency from leaders, uh, the buy-in from New Yorkers. What's your sense of sort of how we're approaching this and and obviously, New York is is part of a national picture, part of a global picture, and there's only so much that New York contributes. But as you just note, noted, it's not just about how much New York contributes to, you know, carbon emission reductions. It's also about, you know, sort of pushing the conversation and setting an example. So what's your what's your assessment on all of this that I just threw out? Yeah, there? I mean, the, the, the physics is a bit brutal here, right? Like there are, you know, we can think that we're negotiating timeframes and, you know, um, you know, figuring out what's practical or politically possible. But there's a reality that like the, the conversation around what's necessary to achieve the Paris Agreement and, um, you know, avoid some of the, the more catastrophic impacts that we've been hearing about and seeing in some in some ways is a very different conversation around what's possible and practical. And I worry that those two conversations are getting harder and harder to reconcile, um, which is going to mean that we're the, the, the necessary things to do are going to get more and more radical and more and more disruptive. So. I mean, there's a there's a clear sense that we all need to be moving faster. And for all of the leadership that um, New York City, New York State, California, others are showing, you know, you know we need more of it. We need and it, we need it to go faster um, that figuring out what this transition looks like um, is going to continue to be complicated and difficult. And as we're seeing geopolitically, there's a, a number of factors that are you know, spurring that advance, but also making it more complicated with, um, you know, events in, in the war in Ukraine, or certainly that like what that's what that's doing with, um, you know, global energy flows. But I think the best thing that we can do is to focus on driving our own emissions down. And it is those transformative things like the clean energy transmission and tier four and getting access to more renewables, that's enabling us to um, drive down our own demand for fossil fuels that are causing this crisis and doing everything we can through local on 97. I, I, it's hard to say that we're moving fast enough, but we, because we need to be moving faster clearly. Um, but we've also got to figure out how to get this right so that we don't cause an even greater backlash. And I do worry about the backlash in a lot of different ways. Um, just like we saw with the, the gas tax um, holiday and how that played out quickly. You so, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I think those are good examples. You know, one of the things I, I, I think about in this discussion is is congestion pricing. Obviously, the pandemic disrupted so much, delayed so much. But, you know, the idea I'm also I'm not particularly a big believer that instituting congestion pricing in New York City uh, to enter, you know, the central business district of Manhattan is actually going to reduce uh, travel that much. I think I personally, I just, I think, you know, a lot of people are going to wind up paying the congestion fee and that'll be more revenue for mass transit. But I, I'm a skeptic on the other side of the equation about it reducing congestion, but it, 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 it can't hurt certainly. Um, but, but seeing that delayed as long as it's been delayed is, you know, again, just one of these, uh, local, you know, very locally focused policies. Obviously, there's federal approvals that need to be gotten. So I understand there's complications. But one of these things that makes you question if people are, you know, really sort of getting it and 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 having the same, you know, sense of urgency that they say they have. Um, so Julie, on, jump, on jump in on any of this, please. Yeah, yeah. Congestion pricing, which is like a, has been a big priority for NYLCB for a very long time. Um, and, you know, a Donald Trump didn't want to advance this, right? There is no question about it. They delayed this approvals from the MTA, which had been submitted in 2019. They didn't do one darn thing with it through their time in office. And so as soon as the Biden administration came in, you know, uh, Secretary Buttigieg made this a priority. Um, and so we know that that's moving forward. They're going, the MTA and the federal government and the state government are all going through the process right now to do the environment 
environmental reviews that are necessary to have all the public meetings. They've had an extraordinarily robust public uh, public process where they're meeting with you know communities in New Jersey and Connecticut, in the city, in various boroughs, in Long Island. Um, you know, we are there. They had very specific discussions with uh, people who represented low income communities. Um, they know how urgent this is. Um, you know, we expect that um, this could result based in London. In London, they had a 15 percent reduction in traffic congestion associated with adoption of congestion pricing. And they had a 19.5 percent reduction in, in particulate matter emissions, which, again, that's the air pollution that causes everyone to get asthma and other respiratory ailments that were so obvious. Um, you know, one in 10 children in New York state have asthma, one in four New York city children in environmental justice areas have asthma, and it is the leading cause of school absenteeism. So when we think about the cost of these various things, right, it's not just the cost in dollars and cents straight directly. It's how much money are we spending in the healthcare system associated with these externalities, these pollution costs associated with um, fossil fuel infrastructure. So it is important that the MTA get those dollars, even if there's not an immediate reduction in traffic, which is, of course, what our goal is, because the more reliable that the New York City mass transit system is, the more people are willing to take it and get out of their cars. The more that we have that complete streets plan that you're talking about, the more bike lanes that we have, the more options that people have, the more electric bikes people have uh, through city bike, for example, the more people will get out of their cars and be willing to take an alternative means of transportation because we're not going to be able to drive our way out of the climate crisis. Yeah, you know, uh, as much as I can, um, you know, I connect the, the the city and the MTA, and a lot of this really does come back to city government approach to buses, you know, as so, as so important here. We're obviously not building a lot of new subway stations and subway lines. It would be good if more of that was happening. There's a tiny bit of it happening, obviously, um, with the Second Avenue subway, but you know, the bus system, um, you know, is, is such a huge piece of this equation, including making it attractive to take, to take mass transit as a, as another component when the congestion pricing kicks in, assuming it, it eventually does. All right. We don't have a lot of time. The MTA has actually been advertising the fact that, you know, how you can fight climate change is you can take mass transit. Well, Uh, and then, yeah. And that gets at another piece of this, which sometimes, you know, flummoxes me, which is that you get, you know, um, government leaders who, who make help make, you know, some really smart policy or at least, uh, you know, policy that is nation leading on, on climate. And, but you don't, you don't often see the sort of sustained focus on it and the almost sort of attempt to uh, sort of change the culture and the cultural awarenesses. And that can only go so far. But, you know, I think so many of these pieces go to go together. Um, you know, it'd be important to, to work on all of them simultaneously. Um, we, we don't have a lot of time left. I want to hit a couple more things. I'm, t- I'm speaking here with Julie Tai, the president of the New York League of Conservation Voters, and Daniel Zarilli, special advisor on climate and sustainability at Columbia University and former New York City chief climate policy advisor. Um, just, just a couple more quick things. Dan, give us the sort of, if there is, the next New York City policy, something that you wanted to do when you were in city government, but couldn't quite get there or couldn't quite convince the mayor to do or something you've seen in another city that you really think New York City should adopt under under Mayor Adams. Is there is there a next frontier here on these issues that New York City you think, um, you know, needs to take on? Well, what I'm what I'm excited about is that over the last, you know, eight or so years, we, we put in place the ability to drive greater change. And, and so, you know, New York City's emissions have already peaked, but they're still far too weather dependent. And, but now that we see things like Local 97, the gas ban, new transmission, we've, we're actually like the policies to bend that curve down are in place. And now that's gonna open up a lot of opportunity to really go deep on electrification. Um, you know, as, as people see and start to experience a cleaner grid, there's gonna be more cultural awareness of, you know, getting rid of, you know, stopping burning things for our energy and getting to plugging them into a cleaner electric grid. And that's going to take us into a whole lot of different areas. And I could imagine, you know, the the maritime sector and shipping, there's been a lot of 
um, uh, you know, just a conversation around things like shore power and electric ferries. And we're going to continue to open up those opportunities that have great air quality benefits, particularly in our port and EJ communities. That's going to be really interesting. I'm really excited by the refocusing and deepening of the commitment to environmental justice and, and even renaming the mayor's office of climate and environmental justice to focus because I think with um, local laws 60 and 64 from 2017, the environmental justice legislation, um, there is now a process in place to embed EJ into the city's decision making. And I don't think many people really appreciate how broad that can go with, um, you know, how that's going to play into budgets and land use and transportation planning and siting of facilities and really taking a hard look at how um, how to really embed environmental justice into the actions uh, the city takes on an everyday basis. So there's um, there's a I think there's a lot to be excited about. I think the mayor's got a great team and can do amazing things. Um, the big question is how he's going to direct them and where he's going to set them loose and, you know, spend the political capital to deliver big transformative change. And I'm, I'm excited to see where they go. I'm excited to see what they have in, in store for Earth Day this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we're just, um, you know, we're in the first couple of months of the administration. They have a lot of good, uh, a lot of good room to do good things. I'm excited about what they can accomplish. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, we're, we're just now kicking into kicking into high gear of city budget season. Now that the state budget is adopted, that obviously influences the city budget significantly. And so we'll we'll see a lot of those discussions, including around uh, park spending and the city's composting program and a variety of other things. We didn't get it into a lot here about waste management, although that, and, and that's obviously a, a major portion of this. Speaking of, everybody should read uh, Julie's op-ed published with us at Gotham Gazette on extended producer responsibility, which we don't have time to get into the details now, but that was a policy that you want to see at the state level uh, that wasn't passed in the budget, but you know could potentially be um, uh, in the offing, depending on how discussions go here in the legislative session. Julie, uh, final thought from you, anything we haven't mentioned, anything you want to push leaders on that we haven't discussed, um, uh, anything around sort of climate, um, adaptation versus mitigation, um, that, that, you know, we haven't quite hit on since we've been focused a lot on, on mitigation. Sure. I, I think a couple of things. One is, is now, as Dan said, both the state and the city have adopted really ambitious laws. They need to go about and implementing them now, right? which is why tier four was so important and why the offshore wind projects moving forward is so critical, because it's it's one thing to talk about policy and right have it in a statute. It's a whole nother thing to actually be executed and, and really move that transition to a green energy economy. And it really does need to be embedded in just about everything we do, right? Like how we power everything is going to change. And, and that I think is something that really has not yet been fully appreciated by my friends up the street on Wall Street. Um, and that is something that we're starting to see a change on. And there's much more focus on ESG and how they make that real. Um, accountability is going to be really critical um, because I, I, I really like appreciate Local Law 97 and how important it is. And there's two years out to implementation. And it's three years since the law has been passed and there's no rules yet. Um, so it makes it challenging for people to implement. So it's making sure that our government leaders are being accountable and then for the people who are required to to support that to be held accountable. So that is something that we're certainly keeping a close eye on. And and I look with interest at what the controller put out yesterday, Brad Lander has put out, um, you know, I think a dashboard for looking at implementation for some of these things. Um, To your point, we did not talk much about zero waste. Mm -hmm. Um, New York City has a goal of zero waste by 2030. There's no way we're going to achieve that because we're not taking action about it and we're not taking it seriously um, as a a city government. So we're excited to see the council seems very invested in moving forward with composting um, because that is something that we can turn into a product and we can manage more locally and we can reduce the amount of methane that we're producing, which is even more potent of a greenhouse gas emission than carbon is um, and deal with extended producer responsibility and things like that. And to your point about culture, I think open streets is really an opportunity for us to change some of our cultural behavior. We're reclaiming all the real estate that we're spending on, on cars that sit around 
um, for days on end um, without really providing a, a good use for society um, and using that space for open space uh, to give people more access to, to park space or to green space for us to have more bus lanes, for us to have more bike lanes. Um, all of that is, is required. Like when I was in Amsterdam, right, I was more concerned about getting hit by a bike than I was getting hit by a car as a pedestrian, right? And while nobody wants to be hit by either of those things, yes. you are a lot less likely to die if you are hit by a bike than if you're hit by a car. So making that much more accessible and having some kind of bike education and more protected bike lanes is and more bus lanes is, is all are all important pieces to giving people an option to changing how they think about getting around New York City, which is really critical. Mm -hmm. So we do need to work on, on implementation of some of these big ideas to make sure that we're putting them to task um, and making them work. So I think there's a lot of real opportunities and we should be thinking about this as a how can we re rejigger our economy so that it's focused around green jobs and the green economy. And that shouldn't be something that's just for me and the environmental sector to do, but it's something for all of us to do. Similarly, on the government side, it's not shouldn't just be siloed into, you know, the DEC and the NYSERDAs of the world to make it happen. It needs to be part of how how DOT does their work. It needs to be how housing and community renewal does their work. So that it's it's incorporated into all of those decisions, and that is that is important. And, and we need that's certainly. I will, can I end with this? Yeah, we and need Dan, the federal government. Final thought, Dan. We need Chuck Schumer to deliver us Build Back Better or something uh, like it, so that we get those investments from the federal government. We know Senator Schumer supports us. We know the New York congressional delegation has been very supportive of real climate action at the federal level, but we need funding and support from the federal government to help make this a reality. And I will say, uh, picking up on something you mentioned about, you know, this needs to be a sort of all hands on deck and it's it's across all disciplines and all agencies. You know, this is something that Mayor Adams has smartly spoken about related to a variety of issues that, you know, everything from gun violence to climate change, these are not siloed in specific city agencies. They really, you know, they can be led by some, but they need to be across all. And that's one of his big promises is, is more of that and, and coordination, which will be very, very important to see how he, he uh, executes. Dan's really final thought. Um, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of Sandy. And I think there's going to be a lot of conversation over the next several months leading up to that around, you know, how much the city has done and what more needs to be done to make sure that we're protected against the, um, you know, the storms, the sea level rise, the, the heat that's coming at us. We can do everything we, we can to drive down our own emissions, um, but the globe's emissions are still rising. And until that changes, we need to be ready for what's coming to us. And um, I worry, you know, but of course, I worry that our ability to adapt is going to be exceeded um, if we don't get emissions under control as a globe. So what we do here in New York City um, can, you know, because we're the cultural media, financial capital of the world, can propagate outwards. It's important that we get it right and set a good example. Um, and we also need to think of ourselves as acting in that um, in that global sphere as well. But we are going to, you know, we're going to be going through a lot of conversations around flood protections and heat mitigations and trees and cool roofs and all sorts of things over the next several months. And I think it's a it's a, the other really important part of this conversation that we uh, we should come back and uh, and go through that next. Absolutely, um, uh, as often the case when I'm wrapping up these discussions, even after a long uh, detailed discussion, uh, I'm looking at my list of things we didn't get to here, and it's frustrating me already. So yeah, we'll we'll talk more down the line. Um, Julie Tai, president of the New York League of Conservation Voters, Dan Zarilli, special advisor on climate and sustainability at Columbia University. Thank you both very much for the time. Appreciate it and uh, and be well. Thank you. And don't forget Thanks, to vote. Thanks, Julie. <laughs>